88.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at www.kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock, coming up next, Cover to Cover. Welcome to Open Book on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Carrie Perloff, the Artistic Director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater, in San Francisco. Carrie Perloff has been Director of ACT now for, what is it? 18 years. 18 years. And is one of the people responsible for the revival of the Geary Theater, the revival of American Conservatory Theater. And I think, to me at least, the person most responsible for making ACT these days one of the most important local theater companies in America. Carrie Perloff, in looking at the previous season, we have two shows to go. Vigil just closed. The next show is the Alan Akeborn, which is... Round and Round the Garden, part of the Norman Conquest trilogy. And then we have Tosca Project, which you've been working on for something like four years. Yeah, well, on and off, yes. I want to talk a little about the Tosca Project. I was trying to do some research online and figure what the heck this thing is. (laughs) The closest I could come up with is it's kind of a dance theater piece based at the Tosca Cafe in North Beach using some, quote, themes from the opera Tosca, though the music is from all over the map. And in a way, it reminded me perhaps of a Broadway show called Contact. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in this dance theater thing? Because you're primarily a theater director. Right. I have a real dance background. I did ballet for years and years and all kinds of dance, and I adore dance, and I'm a huge fan of San Francisco ballet. And about 10 years ago, I met a choreographer there, Val Canaparoli. He came and did the Tarantella in a doll's house for me, for Renee Augustin. And he was so extraordinary, not only because he's a wonderful choreographer, but he's fantastic with actors. And he immediately understood, which is hard for someone from such a different field, how to use a piece of dance to tell a story in a play, which that Tarantella in Dallas has has to do. So we got very friendly, and he did a lot of other kinds of things for me. We did a big new Christmas carol at ACT, and he did all the choreography, um, which was remarkable. And then we did Tis Pity, She's a Whore, and he did choreography for that. And meanwhile, we had brought from Canada, we've been doing a lot of fusion theater, multidisciplinary work, and he he brought from Canada, uh, we brought... Um, a piece called The Overcoat, which was a movement theater piece that Morris Panitch created with Wendy Gorling based on a Gogol short story with music of Shostakovich. And when Val saw that, he said, you know, if you love this kind of material, we could create this ourselves. You don't have to import this. We could actually create it ourselves. So I thought, well, what a great idea. I was mostly doing it as an experiment. I didn't know if we'd ever actually make the piece, but I was curious about putting five classical ballet dancers and five actors in a room together just to see what would happen. Has anything like that been done before that you know of? Not that I know. I'm sure there have been experiments like this. I think that an interest in kinesthetic theater and movement theaters is really on the rise in the States. And we're certainly finding it in our MFA program that we're doing a great deal of emphasis on devised work and created work and movement-based Storytelling. Why do you think um, that's happening now? Because we're not a linguistic culture anymore. You think? Yeah, I know. 
I'm right. sorry, I know you're a radio guy and I'm a language nut, but, but the fact is, you know, our primary means of storytelling anymore in this culture is not really language. I think people are really intrigued by other ways of exploring both character and narrative and physical expression. I don't know. But it's become a very interesting thing in the theater. And, of course, physical theater and clowning has a, a very ancient history in San Francisco. The Bill Irwin team, Jeff Hoyle, all of the pickles, the mime troops. So it's not that it has never been true here before. The idea really came about, we were working with Muriel Maffray before she retired from San Francisco Ballet, a great, great dancer. And she sent us off to watch this film called Le Bal, which is an Ettore Scola film that is about a community dance hall in Nazi-occupied France and the story of what happened to the people in that hall just told through movement. It's an amazing film. And I was very intrigued and I thought, well, there's an idea for a piece but where would we want to set it? And I went to the Tosca Cafe to talk to Jeanette Etheridge, whom I adore, who's the doyenne of that bar, in part because she sits on the board of the Nuria Foundation and I thought maybe we could get a little grant from the Nuria Foundation to do a workshop. As I was sitting in the bar at 2 in the afternoon watching Jeanette smoke and the beer get delivered and looking out the window at the light across Columbus Avenue, I thought this is what this piece should be about. It's a, an extraordinary place where the beat poets hung out and wrote poetry and where uh, soldiers did, you know, drank before they disembarked in World War II and where all these extraordinary Russian dancers came when they first emigrated, Nureyev Bursnikov, Yuri Pasikov, Makarova, because of Jeanette's mother. I mean, it, it's a remarkable space that started with a group of Italians and named it after Tosca. And I kept thinking, why? Why was it called Tosca? What did they miss, those Italians, in 1917 when they started this bar? And why is it that the jukebox is filled with Caruso singing Traviana and things like that, you know, singing Italian opera music, Puccini? And Verdi, and that was so interesting to me. So, incrementally, whenever we could grab three days here or there, we started building this piece. It's never been produced. We did a workshop of it about 18 months ago at the forum at Yerba Buena, which was really helpful. We did about 100 hours of video interviews with bartenders in North Beach and with Jeanette and with all kinds of extraordinary people about the history of the bar. And then, inch by inch, we started building it in different sections. Well, when you talk about building it, you're, you're not working off a script. Right. We never sat down in the beginning and said, how the hell are we going to do this? We really get along well, Val and me, and we're very different people, so it's interesting. But there are lots of ways we did this. When we looked at the Second World War section, for instance, we had come up with this relationship with a, a kind of shell-shocked soldier played by Pascal Malat, this gorgeous dancer from the ballet, and uh, the woman who's waiting for him. And I said to Val, if we're going to do the after, when he comes back shell-shocked, we should do the before. And I walked in one day and said to Val, would you go into the other room with Pascal? and at that time it was Joanna Berman and make me a beautiful a duet to Rosemary Clooney singing What'll I Do and that'll be their disembarkation like the last time they ever see each other and he just went off and made it and brought it back and it's incredibly beautiful and it's still in the piece in other ways it was much harder than that and what I found I had to do with the central characters which is Jack Willis our actor in our core company, who's playing the bartender all the way through, I had to create a story, literally a short story. I wrote a short story for Jack, a short story for Gregory, a short story for Rachel about their characters. And then they created a physical language based on that. So Jack Willis doesn't utter any words in it? Pretty much not. 
but he has a character that travels all the way through. He's he's lost a woman in Italy. You keep seeing as he opens a suitcase and you hear the sounds of travel and the sea. This woman keeps coming back, played by Sabina Aleman. Um, there are lots of secrets in suitcases and in hidden in other locations. Gregory has a whole past as a jazz musician on the lamb who ends up in San Francisco. So they all follow a narrative. And how close is it now to completion? I mean, how... F- <laughs> Very good question, Richard. <laughs> I wish I could say it was done. I would say we created about two-thirds of the material, maybe three-quarters, and now we finally have a month to actually be in the room together every day and actually put it together and see what we've got. At what point does that scary moment come when all of the people come in together and you do that first tech run-through? Oh, well, by the time we get to the tech run-through, I think we'll be immensely relieved because we'll have done the really hard part, which is, you know, trying to create out of movement a compelling emotional narrative. And that's the challenge. You know, this is the issue everyone's having with the Twilight Art piece in New York right now that's all dance. It doesn't hold a theater audience. It has to actually have character and narrative of some kind and an emotional payoff for it to be resonant for a theater audience. Carrie Perloff, this actually leads right into some questions I was curious about for you as both director and producer. Mm-hmm. I was in New York and I saw a show called When the Rain Stops Falling oh, yeah, at Lincoln Sending. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting through the entire show and I got it. And afterward, I talked to my mother who was sitting next to me and she said, well, there were three women in the show. I said, no, there were two, two women, women in the world. Yeah. Which meant that she missed how the they were linked. The and yeah. I look at that and then I was talking to another friend of mine who'd seen Buried Child by Sam Shepard in New York 20 years ago. Shepard wrote it and directed it, and he said at the Theater Delice, which is yeah. what it was, Lucille Lortel, mm-hmm. he said it was clear nobody in the audience got it at mm-hmm. all. In these two cases, you as director, how can you know? I mean, is the flaw with my mother? Is the flaw with the audience of Buried Child? You know, I think it's a flaw. It depends upon... How you lay the tracks, and then how carefully an audience reads the clues. I actually thought David Cromer, who directed When the Rain Stops Falling, did a really beautiful job, both sort of choreographically and costume-wise, setting up the young and old characters so that you could figure it out. But you had to also read the program, which some people don't like to do, and I get that, and realize that you were watching threads over time and follow, because they all had the same names. Right. You know, it's like a Tolstoy novel, where you had to kind of carry your crib sheet with you and remember who was who, do you know? And so, I mean, I, I think some audience members are willing to work harder than others, always. Some people also don't go to the theater to have it made clear. I mean, in other words... There are some of us who need to know the narrative and know that we got it. There are other people who really revel in the sensory experience of the whole journey, and if they don't get how all the pieces fit, that's okay, too. You try as a director to, to, to make it clear, you know, to to illuminate something, to crack it open. If it's a play like that that's a time travel play, I don't know what's to get in Buried Child. It seems like that metaphor is pretty ham-fisted. I mean, I don't know how you couldn't get it, but maybe they didn't have its time. But, you know, Beckett, people still puzzle over. It's very elliptic. Pinter, we're doing the homecoming next year. That is a, an extraordinarily puzzling play, and that's part of its pleasure, is that it's not entirely clear. And I think sometimes you have to free an audience from the obligation to make a one-on-one equivalency or to get everything. You know, it's not an essay. It's okay. Maybe your mother had a very rich couple but, of hours in the theater. It was a very beautiful play, very beautifully acted, I thought. And even if she didn't get the relationship of those two women, maybe there's something else that really she took away with her. Well, Carrie Perloff, let's go back to Fedra, let's say, uh-huh. which is 
some you directed and also has certain difficulties in it. How do you know when you're directing it what the audience will and won't get? I mean, how, you sit how in the house, it? you can feel it very quickly. Really? I mean, with Phaedra, it wasn't a question of getting it. You know, a woman falls madly in love with her stepson. And right. That much is clear. You know, it doesn't take a lot to figure that out. The challenge with Phaedra is that you have to sustain attention over very long, extraordinary speeches. And you can feel. All I can tell you is, when that play started, the audience began to listen. And I could tell exactly where they clicked in. And most of the time, they literally didn't move for an hour and 40 minutes. Nobody walked out. They just held their breath. So you can tell when they're listening. You can tell when they're not getting it. The first preview of Chalk Circle, we knew we hadn't set the prologue up. Doyle had taken out the prologue that Brecht wrote, but not quite clearly set up the way he envisioned the play within a play. And uh, it was really clear that the audience didn't get it at all. I cared about that more than he cared about that. He said, but that's okay, they'll get other things, you know, and I thought, no, but it's actually important that they get that. So we tried during previews to do a lot of work on that. That's the importance of previews. Yes. Previews are your chance to really have a dialogue with an audience. With Vigil, Vigil has a fantastic plot twist in Act 2. Morris Panitch, who wrote it and directed it, was absolutely sure everyone would see it coming. Because he's, in fact, planted the seeds very clearly. And once you do see it, you know it. But the fact is, the first preview, that moment came, Marco said the line, and the audience screamed. And it was clear that they hadn't gotten it. So I said to Morris, don't worry about it. They clearly didn't get it. Now, does that mean they're slow? I don't know. They were really listening. They just didn't see it coming. And I saw it coming during intermission. And Um, some people saw it coming. Exactly. You can't predict. It's the beauty of live theater. You know, everybody watches different things. Everybody brings their own template to it, their own lens, their own concentration, their own predilections. Your mother probably, I don't know how old she is, but she's probably used to seeing a more linear kind of theater, let us say. So when you then go see a play like that Australian play that we're talking about at Lincoln Center, which is very fluid... If you're another generation and you're used to nonlinear theater where you have to keep track of things happening in multiple time, it's easier. Just the way a younger generation has an easier time tracking multiple kinds of music or, or shorter scenes and a much harder time watching sustained scenes. That's just what you bring into the theater with you. Do you think that what you're talking about now goes back to what we were talking about before? The fact that the younger generation may be more able to do that because they've lost words, maybe? Yeah. I think they've lost words and they've lost sustained uh, concentration. You know, this is not a generation that reads novels. They may read lots and lots of content online or whatever, but in much shorter bursts. So, you know, that makes doing, I don't know, Eugene O'Neill challenging. (laughs) Where you need people to actually sit for a long time. You're listening to an interview with Carrie Perloff, the artistic director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater. Now we've got the next season and how do those kinds of ideas play in because obviously there's a fear and i know the fear because i've gone to a lot of theater that older generations are going and the younger ones aren't so you're caught in this squeeze you want younger people to come to the theater and yet at the same time you want to create great theater yeah well, we're mixing it up all over the place. We're starting with Bill Irwin creating this outrageous Scapin that he's starring in and directing and co-wrote with Mark O'Donnell. And I hope that'll be an audience of every age. It's a great children's show. It's a great adult show. It's incredibly witty. It's all of Bill's signature clowning with this all-star barrier clown cast, Jeff Hoyle and Steve Jones and Judd Williford and three of our incredible MFA students and music by Randy Craig, who, who creates the scores for the Mime Troupe. Um, so it'll be a delight. And I think we'll attract 
lots of different kinds of audience. That was a 14-year-old script or he something? He started that about 14 years ago, did it once in New York, and then put it away, and now he's revised it. What relationship do you have to a show like that? Do you sit in the back and... I'm very close to Bill, and we've worked together for years, so this one has been such a pleasure. You know, we've just been casting it, so I'm always in the room with him, and same with the design team, and, so, you know, we, we work every step of the way, and we talk about what we're going for and what we want to try differently and what we're hopeful for, and then I just try to be an eye for him. Do you have shows for the 11 to oh, 12 yeah. season? Yeah. And 12 to 13? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of stuff in commission, so it depends on when these things get done. We're working with Ping Chong right now on a big new piece, and that may be 11, 12, I hope, you know, when that commission gets done. We have two other commissions. With this year, it was a lot of things that we'd been looking at and that we love. My career was sort of shaped on Harold Pinter, and when Pinter died a year ago Christmas, I was absolutely determined to do a major Pinter, so we're going to do the homecoming, and to do a big Pinter celebration and really do a memorial and celebration of his life. So that's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. When we encountered Terrell McCraney, this extraordinary young African-American writer who'd written three plays that were then being done in trilogy in New York, as soon as I read them, I thought, somehow we have to be part of this. And I was also excited about kind of continuing a dialogue that had been happening for some years at ACT about partnering with other Bay Area theaters. The Magic did my play Luminescence Dating some years ago when Chris Smith was running The Magic, and that was a very happy experience. Ryan Roulette, who runs the Marin Theatre Company, is an ACT MFA acting graduate. So that trilogy is now being done with ACT doing Marcus, the Marin Theatre Company doing In the Red and Brown Water, and the Magic Theatre doing The Brother Size. We'll do them as a collaboration in a sense. We'll market them all together and we'll each produce our own. What's the relation of the three different plays? Well, chronologically, the Red and Brown Water, which Marin is doing, comes first, and then Brother Size at the Magic, and then Marcus. Um, chronologically. That isn't quite how he wrote them. So, the way they'll be produced, Marin's and the Magic's will be at the same time, and then ours will be after that. Theirs is in September, ours is in October. And you're doing Canada's virtual mm, stage and electric theater? This is an theater. amazing company. You know, I love multimedia theater and, and kinds of things that use all kinds of different storytelling techniques, and we had a huge success this fall with encounter, which was remarkable and used um, song and narrative and the physical storytelling and great video and film. And I was introduced to Kim Collier, who's directing this amazing No Exit, through Wendy Gorling, who did the overcoat for us. And, you know, I've been going back and forth to Canada a lot, seeing a lot of work in Canada. And this piece just fascinated me. It was a way to think about an existential play in totally theatrical terms, which is that hell is film basically. So, in the software play, they walk onto the stage, these people go down, they walk into a bunker, and in that bunker are three live video feeds, and those characters in hell are projected onto these huge screens, and then when they burst out of hell, they're live back on stage. Then, of course, there's Tales of the City, the musical. Now, is that potentially a Broadway? Yeah, probably. Probably, but uh, it's not why I wanted to do it. It's uh, something we've been talking to Armistead about for many, many years particularly because Olympia Dukakis, who's an associate artist at ACT and is on our board and is performing with us right now and has done many plays with us, was Mrs. Madrigal in the television series, was remarkable. And, and so I got to know the books again through her, which was a joy. And Armistead had always wanted to find a way to make a theatrical musical out of the books. But it's a big challenge. As you know, they're episodic. They were not written to be done all as one story. And uh, Jeff Witte, who's the book writer, I think has come up with a really brilliant way to solve it that I just fell in love with. And the music is by the the band The Scissor Sisters, John Garden and Jason Shears, and it's a sort of wonderful,
beautiful fusion of kind of, um, well, just the kind of glam rock that they do, sort of 70s, post-Elton John, post-Janis Joplin, but also quite contemporary sounding music. It's really fun. So we got on board with it and started to work on it. We just did a big workshop of it in New York. We're going to do another big workshop of it here in the fall. It opens next May, end of May, and it'll run through the summer, I hope. That's about how long a major new musical takes. It's a very big, complicated proposition. The design process, the orchestrations, the whole creation of it. You know, it is the great novel, gay novel ever written in the greatest gay city ever during Gay Pride Week. I think there'll be a lot of excitement about it. Do you do any kind of outreach toward younger people specifically beyond, say, the MFA program? All kinds of, I mean, a million different initiatives. You try as much as you can. We do huge outreach to schools. We have a big educator discount so that teachers will come and let their students and young people know about it. We do all the virtual kinds of things that get people talking on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, to, to encourage people to actually find their own way into it. We do really extensive e-dramaturgy beforehand so you know what you're getting when you come in advance. And we keep exploring all the ways of saying... How how do you develop a habit among people for whom this has never been a habit? Well, there's one other thing that, that ACT does, and virtually nobody else in the country does, which is that one or two plays per year are part of the theatrical canon. And that canon has been so misused mm-hmm. by schools. And mm-hmm. this year we're talking Fedra, we're Cut talking Caucasian Circle. Circle. Next year we're talking home, yeah. Homecoming, No Exit. Scapin, yeah. Yeah. No, look, uh, one of my great despairs about the American theater right now is that people have completely abandoned the classical repertoire. And I think it's an enormous problem. I think ultimately you'll never have a robust new play scene if most writers haven't ever seen a play written before 1970. And that's really the case now. If you look at any of the writers we admire, August Wilson, Tom Stoppard, Harold Pinter, you name it, Susan Laurie Parks, I don't know, you know, and those writers were weaned on... Terrell McCraney on classical theater, on Shakespeare, on the Greeks. If you don't have access to that, the work becomes like television drama. We have to fight to keep this alive. So we're trying to come up at ACT with a whole new education program that would combine classical plays with real curricular work in the schools to see if we can't help try to keep this alive because there are no resources at the schools right now to do this. Well, I know for me... I've heard about Caucasian Truck Circle, and I know the story. I've never had a chance to see a professional production. People say this to us all the time. When we did Waiting for Godot, that was one of the youngest audiences we've ever had because people said, we've never seen the play. And I thought, this is Godot. This is the iconic play of the 20th century. What's the challenge for you as a director taking an older play that has the reputation people may not have seen it and trying to make sense of it? And in the way that we were talking about before... So that the audience is grabbed, you know, I mean... Well, it starts with how you cast it. I mean, we did Tis Pity, She's a Whore, and it's a fascinating play. It's a very odd play. You know, so first it was really important to me to have a really strong cast, and I knew Renee Augustin as an actress our audience adores and that they would go with it with her, and we cast Michael Hayden. It was brilliant. I thought the music is going to be really important to creating the world of this play. The visuals are really important. If it's a foreign play, the translation is unbelievably important, and people forget this, that a Chekhov or a Gorky Gogol is only as good as its translation, and if you and find a really good American writer to do that, it really helps. You know, these are the great plays. These are the great stories. They're, in fact, in a way, you know, much richer than most contemporary literature you'd find. So if you get to the heart of them and you tell the story well, usually audiences are excited. 
And again, I think you have to allow an audience to enter a completely new world, whether it's, you know, a 17th century Catholic repressed sexual world like Fedra or a, a very foreign culture, um, you know, that, that you may not be familiar with. But that's the thrill of it, at least that you're going to leave the theater, like with Caucasian Talk Circle two hours later, having been somewhere you may never have been before. And that's part of what theater can do for you. Harry Perloff, how important is it? for a theater goer to sit there and read that playbill before it starts? You know, I think it always helps you to come with a little ammunition. I always go to the Symphony of the Opera early to read the liner notes because it just helps you hold on to what you're listening to. It doesn't mean you won't get something out of it if you don't. We are quite obsessive about dramaturgy at ACT. We do unbelievably beautifully programs, and we post them all online. So if you want to know about what you're going to see, you can go and find it out, and I think that helps. I think if you know that Phaedra's written in the 17th century, that it's a sort of fusion of a kind of Catholic play and a Greek play in a contemporary translation, and what we were going for, it's easier to know where to put your mind. And with the play we talked about at Lincoln Center, they did do a genealogy so you could look at the family and figure out who was who. That was really helpful to me. The other thing I've noticed about modern plays is we're seeing more and more plays without intermissions. <laughs> I tell you, because people have no concentration span. It's very funny. Todd Haynes said to me at the roundabout, we can't do a play that's more than 90 minutes now. I said, you're kidding me. Well, there goes a lot of literature. There goes Schiller, Shakespeare. The Greeks are pretty good. You can get a Greek tragedy in under 90 minutes. You can't get Moliere in under 90 minutes. But that is about what people are mostly willing to sit through, although I found if it's really good, they'll stay. You know, August Osage County, everybody stayed. That was three hours. Well, speaking of long plays... Is there any chance ACT will do Coast of Utopia? Oh, I hope so, Richard. I'm really working on it. Are in you fact, really? I just got off the phone with Tom Stafford this morning because I'm in England next week, and we're talking about how we could figure out how to do it. It would break my heart if we didn't. I feel like we have such an incredible relationship with this writer, and the community has a relationship to Tom, and that we should do it. And there's so many Russians here. So if you can help me raise $5 million, I will absolutely guarantee you that your radio audience will get to see Coast of Utopia, and they'll be the first to know. Carrie Perloff, you working on a lecture down south? Yes, at the Getty Villa in Los Angeles. What's the story behind the play? The Getty is a remarkable collection of, uh, you know, Greek antiquities um, right on the ocean in Malibu. And it's a reconstructed Roman villa, very beautiful, with an amphitheater. So every year they do a play. And this year they wanted to do a big production because they're doing an amazing exhibition of representations of Greek tragedy and Greek art. And they asked me to do one. We were going to do the Bacchae. And then when I looked at the collection, the most represented image was Electra and Orestes holding that urn of his supposed ashes, that great recognition scene. And I said, let's do Electra. So we commissioned Timberland. Lake Wharton Baker. She's done an amazing version of the play, and we just workshopped it. It's stunning. And it'll be outdoors starting September 2nd in Los Angeles. Do you see yourself bringing it here? I hope so. Well, what about doing something like that outside? Well, it'd be, I would love that idea. I love site-specific work, and we're actually going to do some site-specific work at ACT next year around town as part of a, an Irvine grant we got with our MFA program to do more sort of uh, non-traditional programming. You know, if we could find the right place and it would look great for Electra to be outdoors, I'd be game. I asked you this a year ago, and now it's a year later. How would you rate the state of theater today compared to a year ago or five years ago? Last year was a really, really tough year for everybody. There were theaters that closed. A lot of theaters cut 
way back. Everybody was on furloughs. I mean, it was it was life support last year. It's much better this year, I think. Certainly, we found, I mean, we've had a great season and much stronger audiences. I don't know that anybody's out of the woods yet. I think you're going to see a lot more one-person shows, two-person shows in the next couple of years until things recover. But I think the good news is that sometimes when you hit... This kind of wall, people collaborate a lot more. I think that's why this collaborations happened with us and Marin and, and, and the magic. People just start talking to each other. It, it really gets to a point where you have to find ways to do what you want to do in tandem with other people in the community or it won't get done. I think it has engendered more conversation, and that's a good thing. Do you ever feel that you want to just move away from this and, say, direct a movie? Oh, that's such a funny question. I thought you were going to say move away and just write plays. I don't feel like I want to move away and direct a movie. I don't like movies. I know that's a terrible thing to say. I don't like canned experiences. I just get really oogy. I, I go to tons of dance. I go to lots of music. I go to lots of theater. I almost never go to the movies. It feels dead to me. So that isn't what I'd like to do. I mean, I'd love to have more time to create work I want to do. I'd love to learn other art forms. I'd love to be in the room more with musicians. And I've loved being in the room with dancers. I, 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 there are all kinds of plays I'd love to work on that I haven't worked on yet. But I'm not sure directing a movie is the goal. You've been listening to an interview with Carrie Perloff, who's the artistic director of ACT. The Alan Akeborn runs from when to when? April 27th is the first preview, I think, and it runs for a month after that, and it's delicious. And Tosca Project. And the Tosca Project starts previews June 2nd, it opens June 9th, and it runs the month of June. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. to the Mount Diablo Peace and Justice Center on Saturday, April 24, from 2.30 to 5 p.m. for beautiful bargains including great wine, great food, great people, silent and live auctions, art objects, fine jewelry, ceramics, paintings, spa, and many other delightful, valuable items. We are still accepting donations. To donate, call the Peace Center at 925-933-7850. The auction will be held at the Fellowship Hall at the Mount Diablo Unitarian Universalist Church, 55 Eckley Lane, Walnut Creek. For more information, check our website, mtdpc.org, or call 925-933-7850.